Welcome to What Christians Should Know, How You Can Apply Biblical Principles to Everyday Life. Good day to all and welcome back. As always, my name is Dr. Elijah Sadafel. Welcome to What Christians Should Know, Volume 2, Part 6, Predestination and Election. This podcast will actually be in two parts, and this is part number one. So here we go. So how does knowing about predestination and election apply to your everyday life? The answer is simple. Because having a guaranteed destiny makes very clear the direction you are moving and the path you are to take in life. Having certainty about where you are going does not artificially limit you or crush your freedom. Instead, this certainty gives you a sense of security, purpose, and an unbreakable assurance backed up in earnest by a trustworthy God. So before I get into the meat of the lesson, I want to establish one simple rule. This rule makes what may seem complicated exceedingly simple. It is the rule that you must always come back to if you feel confused or unsure with any of the information that I'm about to explain. And the rule is very simple. The rule is, God is sovereign. The New Oxford American Dictionary defines sovereign as a supreme ruler or one who possesses supreme or ultimate power. Basically, when the typical person thinks of God, they think of an all-powerful ruler who answers to no one but himself. Being sovereign is one of God's characteristics, and if you refer to the written lesson, I've proven 30 Bible references to validate the point that God is sovereign. These 30 references are by no means exhaustive. So, if an idea suggests that God is not sovereign, then that idea contradicts the Bible. If an idea contradicts the Bible, which is God's word, then that idea contradicts God. And if an idea contradicts God, who is sovereign, what that idea is really saying is that God cannot be God. This is very dangerous territory. So the short version of this perilous chain is that if God is not sovereign, then God is not God. The implication of this rule specific to predestination is also very simple. Salvation is of the Lord. The only thing we can do for God is bring him our sins. He takes care of everything else. Keep the rule in the back of your mind for this lesson. Every credible idea or concept must obey the rule that God is sovereign. If an idea doesn't obey the rule, then it's certainly an idea that can be held as long as the person accepts the ramifications of that idea. So what is predestination? In Ephesians 1, 3-12, The Apostle Paul writes, In love, God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were first to hope in Christ would be the praise of his glory. So predestination refers to the sovereign choice of God. 
The English word predestination comes from a Greek word that means to determine beforehand or to decide in advance. Predestination is a combination of the prefix pre and the word destination. A destination is a place that you're going, and pre means before. So as it pertains to time, predestination means a decision has been made of where you are going before you even take the first step. Of course, the agent of predestination, or the one who decides, is God. As the text in Ephesians says, He chose us according to the kind intention of His will, according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. Because God is timeless and eternal, this decision beforehand happened before the foundation of the world. People tend to use the word predestination as it pertains to God making a decision beforehand about the destinies of people. Properly speaking, predestination refers to the predetermination of everything. The term election is the most technically accurate term as it applies to those people chosen by God to be saved. Election, then, is a type of predestination as it pertains to salvation. It was predestined by God, for example, for Earth to be located in between Venus and Mars. Earth, however, was never elected because the Earth is not a person. Because it was predetermined that Moses would be elected, Moses was therefore saved. Election is a subset of predestination, and election is more restrictive. For the rest of this lesson, I will go back and forth using these terms, but please keep this differentiation in mind. Wayne Grudem defines election as an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on any account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Election is an important concept because it clarifies the start of God's grace in dealing with particular individuals. That is, and as we shall learn, before the foundation of the world, God chose to bring salvation to specific people. Election signals that before we were even born, God's grace was already in effect and had a predestined plan for our lives. The why and how of predestination. The next question that arises is why does God predestine some people? The simplest answer is that because God is God, and the universe works according to his purpose. 2 Timothy 1, 8-9 says, God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Jesus Christ from all eternity. Because God is sovereign, these are the types of calls that he makes. There is no precise biblical description of how God chooses, and thus this is a secret thing that belongs to the Lord. What is clear is that he predestined us according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed upon us. In other words, predestination is initiated by God and is freely given. The selection process, therefore, of who is to be saved is not conditional on our actions. If our destiny was conditional on our actions, what does that imply? That implies that God makes a decision based upon what I do. 
If that is the case, then God isn't sovereign. And if God isn't sovereign, then God isn't God. Election is in fact unconditional, meaning it is not subject to any conditions. Unconditional election simply refers to the fact that the basis of our election has nothing to do with God seeing something in us that's worthy. Because again, the reason or the why of predestination lies in God's secret will. Isaiah 43.7 has already told us why human beings were made, and that is to glorify God. Therefore, it is God's glory that stands above human choice. Many contemporary circles suggest that somehow we choose to follow Christ. The idea that we are born okay and thus can choose God isn't a new idea at all. Way back in the 5th century, a man by the name of Pelagius touted this idea, but Orthodox Christianity has since labeled him a heretic. Pelagius began with the premise that God could not command us to do anything that we were incapable of executing. Thus, because of our free will, we are morally responsible for our actions. This, of course, rejects what the Bible teaches us about original sin, that no one is good by their own merit, and because of the original sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden, sin entered the world and infected everyone for all time. Of course, if one were to follow Pelagius' thinking and declare that we are born okay and that someone would choose to follow God, a frightening conclusion arises. Since some people can in fact choose the quote-unquote right path, there is no need for Jesus, no need for his sacrifice on the cross, and no need for faith. So while some believers may have sincere intent in their subscription to the belief that we choose God, one ought to fully consider how that understanding, when applied to God, drastically alters the terrain of Christianity. In short, this interpretation means that Jesus died in vain, dismantling the entire Christian faith. In fact, Pelagius would also say that original sin doesn't exist. So predestination is predicated on the foreknowledge of God and is executed based exclusively on the will of God. How do we know this? This brings us to what Reformed theology calls the golden chain of salvation. The chain begins with foreknowledge, goes through predestination, goes through calling, goes through justification, and ends in glorification. The golden chain logically answers the question of what is the precise order by which we are saved. So Romans 8.29-30 says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, and these whom he predestined he also called, and these whom he called he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. So our salvation begins with the foreknowledge of God, and those whom God foreknew he predestines, and those whom are predestined he calls. All those whom are called he justifies, and all those whom are justified he glorifies. Glorification refers to being raised from the dead in new imperishable bodies, having eternal life and being in heaven with the Lord forever. For new comes from a Greek word that means 
to know beforehand. And, as R.C. Sproul writes, when the Bible speaks of knowing, it often distinguishes between a simple mental awareness of a person and a deep, intimate love of a person. The foreknowledge of God, then, is much more than simply being aware of the choice someone will make. It involves a deeper sense of a person's sincere heart condition. So, God knows much more than the facts about the choices we make. He knows us on a personal level. Many opponents of predestination say that it is God's knowledge of the facts of our choices beforehand that compels him to choose some over others. A serious relationship, just like marriage, involves much, much more than the facts of the matter. In fact, God is a loving God, and love tends to act against the facts and what is reasonable. If God knew just the facts of our humanity, he would be compelled to choose no one because of the overriding fact of sin. Hence, what Romans 8, 29-30 does say is that our predestination is preceded by God's foreknowledge. What this text does not say is that God's foreknowledge is conditional on something. Our salvation then begins with God, not us. In fact, when we place Romans 8, 29-30 in the context of Romans chapter 8, we discover a general theme of the sovereignty of God. The third link in the golden chain of salvation is calling. For foreknowledge leads to predestination, and predestination leads to calling. Theologically speaking, there are two types of calls. The first is the external call, which is the preaching of the word. Many people can hear the external call, but not everyone who receives this call will be justified, just like someone who comes to church one Sunday, hears the message, is highly disinterested, and never comes back. This also helps to make sense of Jesus' words in Matthew 22.14 when he says, For many are called, but few are chosen. The internal or effectual calling happens when the Holy Spirit operatively and irresistibly regenerates a person and allows them to respond to the internal call with faith. It is by this faith that a person is justified. Faith, of course, is also a gift from God as it says in Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10. As another example, when Paul and Barnabas began preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, Luke writes in Acts 13.48 that, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Because of this appointment or election, they responded and believed the truth of the gospel. In Romans 11.7, the ESV, the Apostle Paul writes that the reason why some Israelites were saved and others were not is because of election. The text says, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4-5, to Paul writes the believers in the church in Thessalonica, and he says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that God has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Notice as well that Paul writes of the full conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's not partial conviction or hoped-for conviction, but full conviction. 
The Greek word for conviction means full assurance. The first point is that when the Holy Spirit convicts you, you get convicted. The compulsion is irresistible. The second point is that Paul knew whom among the believers in Thessalonica were elected by who responded to the call of the gospel. So what does this all mean? It means that all those in this life who will ever have faith and believe God have faith and believe God because they have been predestined. Romans 8.29-30 reveals that we have faith because we were first elected. Election is causal, therefore election causes the faith necessary for salvation. Faith does not cause someone to be elected. In Romans 9.10-16, the text says, For though the twins, Jacob and Esau, were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So here in Romans, Paul makes our understanding of predestination very simple, citing a classic example. Jacob and Esau were twins. They were brothers. They shared the same womb. So before they did anything, before they even had the ability to choose, before they were born, God's purpose is what predetermined the outcome of events. And the outcome of events was independent of either brother. Also, twin brothers are as similar as you can get. The implication was that if there was something in Jacob that God saw to be good, he should also see that same good thing in Esau. This isn't the case. And the reason why God's purpose predetermined the outcome of events is because God is sovereign. And again, if God is not sovereign, then God is not God. Now you may be saying to yourself, this whole predestination business this isn't fair. It doesn't sound fair at all. Well, in our finite understanding, it may give the impression of unfairness. But in God's dispositional will, he is patient toward us, not wishing that any would perish, but for all to come to repentance, as it says in 2 Peter 3.9. In Ezekiel 33.11, God also says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Ultimately, God desires that everyone come to know the truth, but this is not reality. To address the question of fairness, Paul writes in Romans 9, 20-24, the following very, very sharp question. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Justice is something very fair. God's justice says that because of one sin, the irrevocable penalty is death. Fair justice says that a violation of one of God's commandments buys you a ticket to eternal damnation. But guess what? God is also graceful and merciful, and both of these things aren't fair at all. God doesn't have to give us his grace, but he does. God doesn't have to show us mercy, but he does. If mercy is deserved, then it's not, by definition, mercy. John Doe is not inherently better than Susie Q, 
if he is elect because nothing in him made him more worthy. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross wasn't fair for God at all because God owed us nothing. But out of unfairness to himself, the elect received the gracious gift of salvation because of election. As Paul writes in Romans 9.14, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? The answer is, of course not. God could have not chosen both Jacob and Esau, and that would have been perfectly fair and perfectly just. People who dispute unconditional election use it as fuel to label God as unrighteous, but this view is very man-centered and not God-centered. In a man-centered view, things have to make sense to me. Here, God can't truly be sovereign because my choice matters. Here, God isn't God. In a God-centered view, God is sovereign and God is still God. God could have elected no one and thus saved no one. What he chose to do out of kind intention is to save some. You may also say now that predestination seems offensive. Well, that's because it is. Predestination turns people away. Look at what Jesus says in John 6, verses 43 to 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So who draws? God does. What does draw mean? It comes from a Greek word meaning to draw by inward power or to compel. Notice that the one being drawn is not mentioned in this verse by Jesus. Also notice that if God compels someone and his grace is resistible, then the person has more power than God. In this case, God is not sovereign and therefore God is not God. In John 6 verses 64 to 68, Jesus says, For this reason I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Then what happened? As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. This confirms the fact that, yes, the concept and the idea of predestination will turn some people away. Another objection to the sovereign choice of God in predestination is that the selection seems to be random, like God rolls the dice and whenever he gets a three, someone gets elected. Ephesians 1.5 says that those whom God elected are chosen according to the kind intention of his will. Yes, God's choice is independent of us, but that doesn't mean it's random or arbitrary. It's based upon kind intention so that all things may work together for good. Paul drives the point home when he paraphrases Exodus 33.9 and reiterates what the Lord explained to Moses. He told him, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. As it says in Romans 9.16, election does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. So what predestination does not? Predestination does not make us robots. Predestination itself was a free voluntary choice made by God, and that choice was made in love, as it says in Ephesians 1.5. If God wanted robots to glorify him, 
then he wouldn't have needed to bother with our creation at all. He would have just had to have made robots. Jesus came into our world because of God's love, and love is always relational. It's never mechanistic. Love is always voluntary and free. This is why Jesus invites people to come to him, but some still refuse that invitation because they are free to do so. Unbelievers have a chance to come to Christ, but they choose not to do so. Predestination does not choose based on faith. I touched upon this in the discussion of Jacob and Esau. In the New Testament, Romans 11, 5-6 states, In the same way then there has to come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Our faith as a condition for predestination would be a form of works. As we have already learned in What Christians Should Know, Volume 1, one of the central tenets of the Christian faith is that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. It is the grace that makes faith possible. Predestination does not make gods out of people. Freedom makes gods out of people. This is an interesting philosophical point to consider. If God is really God, then God is sovereign. If God is sovereign, then he knows the truth about what will happen in the future, and things are determined based on his sovereign will. If, however, your eternal fate is not determined by God, and one clings to their autonomous, libertarian, free will or freedom as the ultimate determinant of their ultimate faith, How then is free will not more powerful than God himself? If eternal fate is not determined by God and is determined by fate or an impersonal Star Wars type of force, then aren't these mystical forces indeed more powerful than God? In both of these hypothetical scenarios, God is not sovereign and therefore God cannot be God. Looking into the future and determining what a person will do, regardless if that choice ultimately rests in God's control or humankind's, is still predeterminism. Any choice that we make in life, whether it's choosing a mate or what to have for lunch, is influenced by something. Being externally influenced does not rob us of our will, it is what in fact makes us human. The Bible never teaches that human beings are autonomous, being free from external influence. It does say that we are free to make choices within the contours of a world that God made. This is exactly why neither you or I can jump up and fly to China because we cannot override the laws of physics that God has made. We can, however, choose to buy a plane ticket and fly to Beijing or instead take a beach vacation in Grenada. The choice is yours. That will conclude part one of predestination. In part two, I will go further in detail into what predestination does or the positive effects it has in a believer's life, including how we can all deal with our Christian guilt and how we can be sure of our salvation. Until then... Take care and God bless. Thank you for listening to What Christians Should Know. For more valuable content, please visit us at chesadoffel.com. 
For general inquiries, email us at info at wcsk.org.